We are going to find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 tonight. And as you're turning there, let me pray for us. Lord God, uh, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your word tonight. Lord God, that you would make yourself and the truth of the gospel more beautiful and more believable to us tonight. Lord, we pray. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we were encouraged to remember our creator. As creatures prone to forget, we tend to best remember things that we have personally known and experienced. With all the joy, the pain, the trauma, the happiness, and a host of other emotions thrown in. The Bible assumes that we can know God in much the same way that we can know another person or thing. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 38, 8. My sheep hear my voice. John 10, 27. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5, 8. In those that God has redeemed, he's awakened the ability to turn to him, to know him, to apprehend him. As we begin to look into the nature of our creator, we're confronted with the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable its ways. And in thinking about this unsearchable God, Augustine wrote, I can see the depths, but I can't see the bottom. The passage we're going to be looking at tonight gets us into this area of our faith that's much like this. Here's our verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We live in a world that's enamored with religious pluralism, the belief that all paths lead to God, regardless of what you're claiming as truth. They abound in the marketplace of ideas. As we think about this passage, we're going to see three distinctives of the Christian faith that guard us from pluralism and one distinctive that comes from the church being the church. The first distinctive that sets Christianity apart from many worldviews, for us, there is one God. This contrasts the culture of the day, that day, and this day, referenced in verse 5, which reads, For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, or indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God. In one brief statement, the Apostle Paul is letting us know that to be a Christian means that polytheism, the belief that there are many gods, like the Mormons believe, is off the table. If there is one God, the rules of logic force the conclusion that there cannot be many gods. There can't, they can't both be true at the same time. These same rules of logic keep us from adhering to either pantheism the belief that everything is divine, or atheism, the belief that there is no God. For us, the Christians that Paul is writing to and all believers throughout the centuries, there is one God. As Christians, we wholeheartedly agree with the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Believing this, we are then commanded in verse 5 
to love the Lord with all our heart and soul and might. Notice how this command directly follows the statement of the Shema. The right response when confronted with the exclusivity of God is worship. Worship in totality, all, your whole person, not merely outward appearances and obedience to commands, but the heartfelt love and commitment of your entire being that naturally works itself out in following God's commands and returning to him in repentance and faith when you inevitably fail to keep, to keep those commands as you ought. The second distinctive from our text sets Christianity apart from other monotheistic religions such as Judaism or Islam. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here we see God the Father and God the Son, each unique in person, yet as historic Christianity is believed, one in essence, along with the Holy Spirit. Followers of Islam or Judaism will agree with us on God being one, but would wholeheartedly disagree with the divinity of Jesus. Pushing down on this distinction forces us to disagree with the pluralistic notion that we are all worshiping the same God in our own unique way. Are we really? Is a singular God the same as a triune God? Christianity is unique in confessing as we do when we recite the Nicene Creed, that God is one in essence, yet three in person. It's certainly a mystery to us. Like Augustine, we can't see the bottom. We'll never fully comprehend how the one God exists in three persons, but it's the teaching of scripture. Just a few examples to illustrate this. At Jesus' baptism, you have the scene of God speaking, Jesus being baptized, and the Spirit descending like a dove. You have to conclude that either Jesus is a master ventriloquist with a pet bird, or there's something else going on, the three persons of the Trinity. In the giving of the Great Commission, Jesus commands the disciples to baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In the closing statement of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The testimony of scripture agrees that God is the only true God. The Father, described as by Calvin as the fountain of the deity, the author of all things, maker, preserver, and governor of the whole universe. And as our passage puts it, from whom are all things and from whom we exist. Yet, as the drama of scripture unfolds, we see God made flesh in Jesus. He is God, but distinguished himself from the Father. Then with the Spirit's descent at Pentecost, the early Christians were faced with the reality of the third person of the Trinity, working to undo the curse of scrambled languages stemming from Babel and making believers into new creations in Christ. We can't fully understand it, but we can see the teaching of the Bible and experience the truth of the Trinity. Michael Horton explains it like this. We see that all good gifts come from the Father who gave his Son, but it is the Son who gave his life for us, and it is the Spirit who indwells us. 
The three persons are engaged in the work together, but differently, according to the unique characteristics of each. To try and wrap it up in a nice little bow, easily described, gets us into all kinds of different heresies, subordination, where the Father is one, and Jesus and Spirit are somehow less, quote-unquote, divine. Or Arianism, what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, where only the Father is God and the Son is created. Or modalism, where the Father and Son and Spirit are all masks of one divine person. It's best to just leave it in the realm of, I see it, I've experienced the work of all three persons, but I can't explain the inner workings of how it all fits together. A third distinction is the incarnation. By calling Jesus Lord, Paul is equating him with the Lord from the Shema and putting him in opposition to the many quote-unquote lords mentioned earlier. This man, fully human, fully God, is far above all rule and all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, Ephesians 1.21. He is the one who has been given all authority in heaven and earth. And in 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. The incarnation, this God-man, Jesus Christ, is at the heart of the gospel. How does God save the world? It's by becoming human. It's actually through humanity that all of creation is reconstituted, renewed, and saved. This is in contrast to the ideas of the day, where if we want to save the planet, we usually think we need to get rid of humanity, or at least diminish it. Instead of diminishing humanity, we have Jesus, our mediator, of whom John Gill writes, as mediator, having all power, dominion, and government put into his hands, he is, in a special sense, the Lord of his people. And by that right of marriage to them, by right of redemption of them, through his being a head unto them and a king unto them, they acknowledge him to be their one and only Lord. It is this Jesus that God has made both Lord and Christ that we have life. Our verse reads, One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is through him that we are redeemed from sin, Satan, death, and hell. Through him that we have access to the Father, are preserved for his glory, and saved with an everlasting salvation. We joyfully sing with the hymn writer, Hallelujah, what a Savior. One final distinction comes when we zoom out a bit further and we consider the context into which Paul is writing. It comes in a discourse on eating food offered to idols, contrasting the true God with local, lowercase d, deities. Let's go back and read verses 6 through 13. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as readily offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 
Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. But take care that this right of yours did not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The final distinction is the love and the unity of the church. Jesus said that people would know we are his disciples if we love one another. Paul's overall point here is that we're free to eat the food, or sorry, yeah, Paul's overall point here is that we're free to eat this food offered to idols. But if you're going to be a stumbling block to a brother or sister with a weaker conscience by doing so, love them, restrain, refrain from eating. Believer with a free conscience, on whatever the issue of conscience happens to be, do all that you can to preserve the unity of the church. Be sensitive to not wound the conscience of your brother or sister and sin against Christ. Believer with an easily wounded conscience, lean into the truth that for us there is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Remember your Creator. Grow in your possession of this knowledge. Trust the Lord to strengthen your conscience where it's weak or to soften it where it's hard. Brothers and sisters, consider the distinctiveness of our faith and the value that it has as an apologetic against pluralism, but more importantly, let the remembrance of our Creator move you to follow the great commandment to love the Lord your God and also to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us, reveal yourself to us, God, in your, your triune holiness. God, let it drive us to worship you, to honor you, to obey you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.